Good morning. Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We pray that your spirit will join us today, that our minds will be enlightened, that our hearts will be transformed, and we will be brought into unity of your kingdom of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And thank you. Who, who all went to the seminar last weekend? Great. Most of you were there. Thanks for, for coming and supporting. I thought it went very well. Did you all enjoy it? Yes. Yeah, and uh, we have a DVD set now. It's in post-production, so watch for that DVD set. Hopefully it'll be out in a few weeks. Today, the, we're doing lesson number six in our quarterly, The Growing in Christ, and the title this week is Victory Over Evil Forces. Anybody want to read the memory text for us, Romans 8.37? Yet all these things were more than conquerors through him who saved us, who loved us. We're more than conquerors. When you hear this, through all these things, we're more than conquerors. What does it look like to be more than conquerors? What does that look like? Does it mean that if we eat the right foods and rest on the right day and pray before our contest that we'll win our Olympic event, that we'll be a conqueror, we will win? Does it mean that um, if we do those right things, that we will get voted into whichever office we run? for which we run? Does it mean that we'll get the job for which we apply? Or that we'll avoid bankruptcy, imprisonment, torture, or even death? Is that what that means? I don't think so. Yes. Victory over Satan's temptations. Oh, I like that. She says victory over Satan's temptations. Yeah. And, And I point out the things I pointed out because do people ever get discouraged because they read a text like this, they claim the promise, but they don't get the outcome they expect? In some type of an earthly thing. And so then they get discouraged because they didn't get the job or they didn't avoid the, the financial problem or the, the relationship didn't work out and they claim this promise. And, and is, is it a misapplication to apply this promise to earthly success? So. Were the following people conquerors? Job. Yes. Joseph. Yes. Daniel and the three worthies. Yes. Jesus. Yes. The apostles. Yes. Stephen. Yes. Now look at their earthly success. Do they look like conquerors from an earthly perspective? What about these as conquerors? Pilate. No. The Caesars. No. Caiaphas. Annas. But but wait, from an earthly perspective, who could be more successful than Caesar? And Pilate was a governor. And then the high priest, of course, I mean, he had power. So when we think about this Bible text, with what lens are we using? What determines whether one is a conqueror or not? What about in today's world? It's easy to look back, look at history. Oh, yeah, those guys, they, they blew it. They missed it. What about today? Do we sometimes in the middle of health problems, financial problems, family problems, legal problems, feel that we're failing? Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Is success determined by the problems we face? Or how we face the problems. How we face the problems. So is success determined by the obstacles in life or how we live while going through the obstacles? Isn't that really the issue? Do we look beyond the immediate and look to the eternal? Do we see the obstacles and difficulties of life as opportunities to reveal God's power in our life? And the question then is, what is God's power? The power to love, yeah, power to love, the power to serve, the power to forgive, the power to lay down one's life for our enemies. How do we attain victory over evil forces? The lesson title, Victory Over Evil Forces. What methods do we use to obtain victory over evil forces? Can we obtain victory over evil forces by the use of might and power? How much of Christianity can we, can we obtain victory over evil forces by political power? How much of Christianity is caught up right now, less than two weeks ago, to the election, trying to get victory over evil forces through political power? Is the church right now really caught up into this? I hear on the Christian radio station here in Chattanooga, the commentators from saying, you know, you need to vote for, for these principles, you need to vote for this and vote for that. And, and are we going to get victory over evil forces and evil powers through our vote? No. So is the victory over evil forces 
Is it domination of our enemies? Is it occupation of enemy lands? Is it extermination of our enemies? Is this what it looks like to gain victory? Or is winning in God's kingdom, the winning over evil forces, the victory that comes when we turn our enemies into our friends? Yes. Let me read to you from Scripture. This, if you want to turn to the passage, it's going to be 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 16. But this is a very powerful Scripture because it illuminates how we are to view and understand reality. It discloses God's methods for victory, why Christ came to earth, and how we can participate in that victory. And I want you to listen to this very carefully. Starting in verse 16, 2 Corinthians 5, 16. No longer then do we judge anyone by human standards. Even if at one time we judged Christ according to human standards, we no longer do so. Anyone who is joined to Christ is a new being. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is done by God, who through Christ changed us from enemies into friends and gave us the task of making others his friends also. Our message is that God was making the whole human race his friends through Christ. God did not keep an account of their sins, and he, gave, and he has given us the message which tells how he makes them his friends. Here we are then, speaking for Christ as though God himself were making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Let God change you from enemies into friends. Christ was without sin, but for our sake, God made him share our sin in order that in union with him, we might share the righteousness of God. What did you hear? What did you hear? Did you hear anything that gives us a clue on how we gain victory over evil forces? How was the victory achieved? Making friends of our enemies. Making friends of our enemies, she said. Do you notice what it starts out in the first in verse 16? That we're not to, to do something. We're not to, to use human standards, worldly criteria, um, our common earthly way of seeing things because man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And we're not to judge by human standards. How often do we bring godly standards into our church judgments? Do you feel that when you walk into church, any church, that you will be judged by the character of your heart or by the rumors of the outward appearance? By the dress you're wearing, by the clothes you're wearing, by the haircut, by the jewelry that you're wearing? By what happened to you during the week? By what happened during the week, yeah. Those are things that are easy to see. She says those are easy to see. It's harder to, to, to know what a person is in their heart. How about the tattoos? Mm-hmm. How about if somebody comes in with significant tattoos? Do we judge them? We do, but we shouldn't. Such honesty. Thank you. <laughs> God doesn't want to simply change behavior. To have a group of conquered people, submissive beings, passive beings, mindless servants or slaves who cower in the corner of his almighty presence waiting for him to command them to action. That is not what God is wanting. He could have that. What he wants is, I no longer call you servants, rather I call you friends. John fifteen fifteen. He wants our agreement. He wants our intelligent free will given cooperation and understanding. That cannot be gotten through the exercise of might and force. He wants to win us back to friendship. And notice that Christ came to share in our sin, our terminal condition, in, for a purpose. And the purpose is, stated there, that we might partake and share in his righteousness. In other words, he's taking our condition in order to transform us so we can be righteous and healed and restored. How do we gain the victory? Not by force or might or political intrigue, but by truth, love, and freedom. Coming back to that connection. Yes? I think if you put that in the same type of uh, 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 phrases that you did it a while ago, he's taken our condition so that we can take his condition. Well said. Because at the very beginning, he created us in his image. He created us like him, and he wants us to be back in that condition, which is like him. Absolutely. Did everybody hear that? Yeah, well said. 
Uh, I'm going to read you two quotations. I want to see if anybody, first off, it, whether you agree with them, and then it, do, do you recognize who said them? Here's the first one. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. That is why right, temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil triumphant. Have you ever heard that before? Do you agree with it? Want me to, want me to read it again? Yeah, let me read it again. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. That is why right, temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil triumphant. Isn't that well said? Do you know who said it? Pardon? Okay, no. Let me, let me read the next one. And say, say, same person. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience that will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. Martin Luther King Jr. said both of these things. Do you agree with them? Isn't it beautiful? You say, our capacity to love, our capacity to suffer will we'll wear you down and will win you to be our friends. We not only get our freedom, but now, see, when the oppressor becomes your friend, you see you're free. But I thought it was so interesting in relation to the remark that you made last week at our seminar about post-traumatic stress syndrome and how that's a natural response to an unnatural act. They were talking to him about the, the war in Afghanistan and he said... It's so clear that we're programmed and we're born to love and to help each other, not to kill each other, not to destroy each other. That's an aberration. That's left over from hundreds of years ago. This is somebody that we look at and think, oh, that guy's a little... And yet, he's saying exactly the same thing you are. We're not designed to go out and kill each other. We're not designed to to conquer each other. We're designed to love each other. And yet, the news looked at this and went, that guy's crazy. Hmm. First paragraph in Sabbath's lesson, it says, In some parts of the world, religion is basically a source of power that may be seen as nothing but a way to help one meet challenges in daily life or daily living. The Christian notion of salvation from sin, for example, is foreign to many traditional religions. In these places, Christianity risks being seen mainly as a means to help solve problems of everyday life. So the thought came to me, they're they're making this contrast between everyday reality versus salvation from sin. Um, What is the Christian notion of salvation from sin that's taken to the world? It it says it right here, it says uh, the Christian notion of salvation from sin, for example, is foreign to many. Well, when Christians go out to the world to take the Christian notion of salvation from sin, what, what message are they taking? What, what, what do you think is being communicated? How would you describe... Has anybody had interactions, gone overseas, talked to people? What concept goes to the world? Salvation from sin. God died for us. God died for us. Why? Why did he have to? Why didn't he just save me without dying? The law required it. Why? Why? Because he's just. Why? Well, I'm always dressed. But how does how does God dying in any way satisfy justice for my wrongs, for my sin? Justice over Satan. Justice over Satan. Actually, we're going to come to that because we're talking about evil forces here. This is one of the constructs often put forward. Let's uh, let's just cogitate on that. Um, Do we represent the truth about God or do we make it harder for people to find healing with the God construct we take? Remember, Christ said to the religious leaders in his day that you send out missionaries into the world and when you find a convert, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. I received the following email to our ministry Facebook page yesterday and it said, Tim, I posted this. Whenever God has disciplined us, it has never been for punishment, but always for redemption. He does not seek to destroy, but to heal and to save. God uh, got a, and and the person said, got a good deal of positive responses to this idea. I think it's well said. You agree? Okay. Got a good deal of positive responses, but my pastor responded with this. Quote, this implies punishment and redemption are mutually exclusive concepts. Unquote. 
I've been praying for a clear response. Don't want to mess up the, an opportunity. Only if it's easy for you, if you have a brief, do you have time to respond? So, and I responded. Um, what do you think about this idea? The pastor is suggesting that he's a little concerned with what she said about God disciplining, seeking to heal, and not seeking to punish, as, as if punishment and salvation are exclusive, mutually exclusive. Would you think punishment and salvation are mutually exclusive? Or, or how would you respond to her? She wants to respond. Yes. God is merciful, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay, so there's a Bible quotation that would suggest God doesn't seek to punish, but wants to save. So what would you say to the pastor? Because I'm sure the pastor would say, yeah, I believe that too. That's his attitude, but he has to punish in order to be just. He'd prefer not to, but justice requires he do it. What do we say? Punishment is the natural consequence of sin. Okay, so there's an inherent punishment in sin. It doesn't have to be inflicted by an external authority. And then we're getting back to what we talk about in here often, the two types of law construct. Is it an imposed law like a Roman emperor requiring imposed penalties by the ruling authority? Or is it the natural law by the creator who designed and built life to operate in certain ways? And deviation from that brings natural punishments. Okay, I think that's a great direction to go. There's another idea. I'm going to walk you through this idea. I'm going to suggest to you that actually one of the greatest obstacles to salvation has been a punitive God construct, a punishing God. Now, this has actually been articulated by one of the founders of our church when she wrote that one of the doctrines that turns more people into infidels than any other is the doctrine of eternal burning hell. Well, think through that doctrine. It's not simply, hey, there's this place, and if you happen to wander there like into the lost forest and get lost over there, you could get stuck or trapped accidentally and just suffer forever. That's not what the doctrine of eternal burning hell is. The doctrine of eternal burning hell is not some meandering, wandering, accidental thing. It is an infliction by a punitive God who will torture you forever. That's the doctrine of eternal burning hell. And she's saying this idea that a God will punish you for your sin turns people into infidels. This is what she's saying. Now, and what's happened in our church is we've, we've divorced this idea of eternal burning hell from the God who puts people in hell. And we make it, oh, if you don't have an eternal burning hell, then as long, then God can punish you as long as you deserve with, as long as it's not eternal and it won't turn people to infidels. This is what's happened. And it's, and I'm going to suggest to you that it's wrong. I'll show you why. I was uh, this weekend, uh, actually the last two days I was in Florida doing a documentary, filming a documentary and on, on, um, pornography in the church and the brain changes that happen with these types of things and the various paraphilias. Paraphilia is a, is a term for sexual perver- perversity, a medical term for the various sexual perversions. It's called paraphilia. And the data is very clear on this. And let's walk you through and tell you why. If, if uh, somebody has a paraphilia, which would be pedophilia, voyeurism, these types of things, and they are caught and under scrutiny, scrutiny meaning they're being watched and monitored, not necessarily in, in, in uh, jail, but they're actually in the community, but they're under scrutiny. They, they're being monitored. They very rarely, if ever, act out. And this can go on for years, decades. But when the scrutiny is removed and they, and they believe they're now in a place where they're not being scrutinized, it almost always comes back and they begin acting out on it again. Now, I want to tell you why that is why the scrutiny works to, to, to stop the behavior so well and why it comes back and why and how this ties in to a destructive God construct, a punitive God construct and how that obstructs actual salvation. Um, I want you to imagine, remember the time when you just, uh, you know, maybe got married and, and you've just said your wedding vows and you're on your way to um, your honeymoon. You're in the car on your way. Okay, and you know, in this proper context, there's certain passion of being, uh, you know, certain desires that are normal and, and things that are wanting hopeful for fulfillment that God has built into us and, and things are moving in, the, in this romantic direction, correct, right? Okay, and I want you to imagine while you're driving, you look in the rearview mirror and a police officer is behind you and you turn left and he follows you, you turn right, he follows you. Now, after about five minutes, this police officer right on your bumper What's happening to your desire? Your romantic desire. Is it still there? Where did it go? In the mirror. Yeah, what's happened? See, this is, this is, this is to get, you, get, get your mind around. You're, are you being, with a police officer following you, are you under scrutiny? Yes. You're being scrutinized. You're being watched very closely. And, and, and what emotion does that incite? Fear. And what does fear do to sexual desire? It crushes it. When you're actually afraid, it crushes it, it pushes it out. 
Okay, So this is why pedophiles and others under scrutiny don't act out. It's also why, if, you're, if you tend to like to go a few miles over the speed limit, and a police officer pulls up behind you, what are you going to do with that speed limit? You're going to just stay right on it, right? And then the police officer takes an exit and goes off the exit. What happens to your, your, your speed? It just kind of drifts back up. So it's weird how that happens, isn't it? It just kind of drifts right back up there, doesn't it? Yeah. Why does it drift right back up there? You're not afraid anymore. You're not afraid anymore. And so why were you conforming your behavior? This is the point I'm getting to. Why do you conform your behavior? Fear of getting caught. Fear of getting caught, fear of punishment. Is that a heart transformation? No. 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 And the point is, as soon as the fear is removed, you act out again. There's no conversion. There's no heart transformation. And so when we preach a gospel in which God is the great policeman in the sky, he's sitting up there as the great judge. He has his angels following you everywhere to take note. You live your life under the scrutiny of heaven, fear of punishment and fear of hell, fear of, of the appropriate amount of torment before he kills you in the end, that you may live a righteous, a looking life. You may be a very religious person, a, a Pharisee who keeps all the rules because you do not want to get punished. Very well put. And this, and this is a fear-driven conformity of behavior, and it does not convert the heart. Amen. Perfect love casts out all fear. And the only way we can actually have true transformation of heart and freedom from the, the insecurities and the selfishness and the fears in our heart is when we preach a God of love that wins us back to trust. And in trust, we open the heart. But you don't open the heart to the one you fear. And so you open the heart, the spirit comes in, and there's actually a regenerating, transforming process that happens. And so I want you to imagine you've done something wrong. You know you've done wrong. You've been using IV heroin. That is wrong. But it feels good. So you keep doing it. But it's wrong. And you've just shot up, and you're really buzzing. Do you want to have somebody take you before the judge? Do you want to go before the judge? How about you just shot up and maybe you've got some dirt in the needle and uh, you realize that this is going to be an emboli in your lungs. Do you want to go before the judge? Do you want to go to the doctor, to the ER? Even if you know you've done wrong, you've done it yourself, you shot something into your arm, you could die from this, do you still want to go see the doctor? Okay, this is the point. When we present God as the judge, nobody wants to go see him. Nobody wants to be scrutinized because they fear him. They won't trust him. But even when we've done wrong and injured ourselves, and we know we're wrong and it's our own sin and we've just, uh, bad stuff we're doing, when we see God as the God of love who wants to heal us, we want to go to him. He'll heal us. Search me and see the wicked way in me, O oh God. Create in me a clean heart. And so we, the reason I'm suggesting to you that we have these problems is because the church has been misrepresenting God for decades, for, for centuries. And the final message of mercy to go to the world is the truth that God is like Jesus revealed, a, a, a being who, when the woman caught in adultery, done, did bad stuff and she knew it. She wasn't being raped. She, she went into the adulterous life voluntarily doing it. She knew she was wrong. She gets caught and thrown out before him. And after he gets rid of the crowd, what's he say to her? Not somebody said first. He said something before that. Ah, this is huge, guys. Huge. Think of, put, as best you can, put yourself in the position of that woman. That culture. What, even today in the Middle East, if a woman gets caught in adultery in some of the countries, what's going to happen to her? Okay, so 2,000 years ago, in that culture, when they drug her out, threw her down, said, the law of Moses says she should be stoned, what do you, what do you say? What is she expecting? I mean, her life's over. Now, he dispatches the crowd, and then he says to her, now, so what is she thinking? Yeah. He says to her, where are your accusers? Mm-hmm. What's implied in the question? I don't accuse you. Hey, you don't, I'm not accusing you. I'm not one of your accusers. Now, who is he? God. Thank you. God is not accusing you. Mm-hmm. Get your mind around this reality. God is not accusing you. He's not accusing me. He's not, who's the accuser of the brethren? Satan is the accuser of the brethren. We have this thing so twisted that God sits up there with his ledger book, and then in the judgment, you know, he's going to sit there and pull out all this stuff that you've done wrong to, to you know, pun- and, then, and, and just punishments have to... Have you even heard this one? That during the thousand years, the saved will sit in committees and determine how long the wicked will have to suffer in the fire for justice sake. Yeah. <laughs> it's twisted. It's twisted. No, the reality is you see Christ in this is God. You see me, you've seen the Father. And so we don't miss the implication 
Then he says what you all said. Neither do I condemn you. Our condemnation does not come from God. Our condemnation comes from unremedied sin in our character. The condition itself condemns us. Not God. God seeks to heal us. Is that making sense? Yeah. yeah. So, and I put that in the notes, most of that. Sunday's lesson. Uh, first paragraph, it says, The Christian... Uh, would have no hope of victory over forces of evil unless the stage was set for it. In last week's study, it became clear that Christ, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, gained victory over all sorts of evil and anti-godly powers, quote, powers. In a very real sense, the unmasking and disarming of these powers have placed a limit on them. The fact that the powers have been brought under subjection sets the stage for the victory of the, uh, of the Christian. What are the ungodly? powers ideas she said ideas how did Christ's death expose them how do we experience victory over these powers and uh, you mentioned earlier about you know the the power the, the the victory over satan and so forth some theorize that the battle between christ and satan has legal ramifications And some theorize that there are physical might and power ramifications to this battle. A physical battle going on. Some permutations of the Christus Victor theology uh, suggest that Satan has some real physical power and or legal claim which Christ was required to actually defeat Satan either physically or legally in order to free mankind and earth from his grip. This is a common permutation of certain theological thoughts. Now, let's, let's explore this possibility because it's out there and, and it's actually becoming much more, um, as, as the construct of penal substitution is finally, and it really is losing its hold on the masses. The, the theology, the theologians in many churches are fighting tooth and nail to hold on it, but the gates of hell cannot sustain themselves against the truth. So if you look around, there are the voices are rising up everywhere and revealing the the fraudulent nature of this penal substitution theology. It's rising up everywhere now. It's really, it's like a a crescendo is happening. And pretty soon, nobody's going to buy into that other than a small minority of people who don't want to move forward in the truth. But what's coming up now is this Christus Victor theology is really coming to the forward, uh, this this construct. And and there's various permutations of this theology. And and a couple of them have this idea that there was actually a real physical tussle going on and or a legal battle going on and Christ had to die in order to to wrest the legal claims that Satan had from him. But let me ask you, according to scripture, where is the battle between good and evil forces fought? In the hearts and minds of intelligent beings. If you keep that straight, it'll really help you navigate some of these ideas. Um, Then what is it, if that's the case, then what is it or what is Satan's power that holds us? Deception. deception is one. What else? Lies about God. Lies, lies, and deception is one. What else? Fear, fear, insecurity. Okay, so our own inherent now fallen natures that that are self-oriented and fear-driven that also holds us, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So, can you? How? How? I'm going. I'm going to. How difficult would it be? for God to physically defeat one of his created beings in physical combat? How hard would that be? No. Uh, Is there any evidence at all that Satan could ever compete with God on a level of physical might and power? No. Is there any evidence that Satan could compete with God in creative power? No. No. So God could defeat Satan physically as easily as a child throws a penny to the ground. I mean, that's, that's that simple for him. So any constructs that rise up and try to orient your mind towards a physical battle between angelic forces <clears throat> misdirects your attention. Don't buy into that. It's not about physical might. <clears throat> what about legal battles? Did Satan make legal claim to planet Earth and the souls of human beings? No. Yes, he did. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, when devil was tempting Christ. Listen to this right out of the scriptures. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. Remember this? Remember this? 
So see, he's claiming it's his to give, isn't he? It's mine. I have a right to it. And I can give it to whoever I want. Now, he did make this claim. question is, does he actually have legal claim? No. No. Is there a difference between making a legal claim and actually having a legal claim? Yes. yes. So Satan is the father of? And this is a lie. So there's an entire theology now for some, set, some subsets of Christus Victor theology are actually operating again on Satan's lie. He made a claim. Now Christ has to defeat that. That you know, has to actually have a legal um, victory over, over Christ. Well, here's what one Bible commentator said, and I happen to agree with her in Desire of Ages, page 129. It says the following. When Satan declared to Christ, the kingdom and glory of the world are delivered unto me, and to whomever I will give it, he, uh, he stated what was true only in part. That's the best lies are the lies that have part truth. Okay? The truth only in part. And he declared it to serve his own purpose of deception. See, this is, this, this is said to try to deceive. Satan's dominion was that wrested from Adam. But Adam was the vice gerent of Christ. Uh, he was not an independent, his was not an independent rule. The earth is God's and he has committed all things to his son. Adam was to reign subject to Christ. When Adam betrayed his sovereignty into Satan's hands, Christ still remained the rightful king. There was no claim that he had because Adam couldn't give away what he didn't own. Thus the Lord had said to King Nebuchadnezzar, the most high rules in the kingdoms of men. And gives it to whomever he will. Daniel 4.17. Mm-hmm. Satan can exercise his usurped authority only as God permits. When the tempter off- to offered to Christ the kingdom and glory of the world, he was proposing that Christ should yield up the real kingship of the world and hold dominion subject to Satan. This was the same dominion upon which the hopes of the Jews were set. They desired the kingdom of, the, of this world. If Christ had consented to offer them such a kingdom, they would have gladly received him. But do you see this construct? Anybody comes to you and says, well, Satan actually had a legal claim and Christ had to do this in order to defeat the legal claim in the heavenly courtroom and, and the legal you know, documents had to be filed in the proper you know, place and get stamped with the proper approvals and all that. That's wrong, 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 wrong. Satan made the claim, but it was, a, it was a lie. Let me give you a simple example. If someone came to your house and stole your child, 15. and stole your child, and then later made a legal claim that the child was theirs, would that claim actually be true and the child's theirs? No. No, no this is what happened. It was, it was, he stole something and claims it's his. It doesn't make it his. So why would we develop a theology operating under that premise? And reject it. No, you have a legal claim, and Christ didn't have to meet legal demands. So Christus Victor is not about legal victory, and it's not about physical victory over satanic forces. Then what is it about? If someone stole your child and made the claim that the child was theirs and raised the child to believe that the child was theirs, while the claim would be false... What would need to happen for the child to return to you? Ah, now we're getting a little closer to what's going on here, aren't we? Mm -hmm. The truth would need to penetrate the lies and set the mind of the child free. Mm -hmm. And then that child who doesn't know you would need to know you. John 17, 3. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ and thou ascent. See, we have been lied to we have bought into lies. And so when we, when, when we look at Satan's power, he has power at least in three places. One, you've already mentioned the power of those lies that we believe that holds us in bondage. That's the truth destroys lies, sets us free. But there's another power, the power of our own carnal nature. And our hearts are not bonded to God and his kingdom, naturally. Our hearts are bonded to selfishness and sin. We like it. It feels good. We don't want to give it up. We fight to keep it. And we fight with theologies that give us permission to go out and murder the person who is encroaching into our, our, our drug uh, territory. And then we can go to confession and, and we can get you know, absolution for all these terrible things we do because we've got a, a, a system now that allows me to have my sin and have my pardon from sin and go to heaven anyway. Don't we? 
Do you think that, that system of have my sin and have my pardon to go to heaven anyway is exclusive to Catholicism? No. no. Or does that happen in Adventism and other Protestant Christian churches too? Yes. That's a whole, that's a whole penal substitution. We don't get victory over sin. We don't get free from sin until Christ comes. We continue to live in sin as sinners, living a sinner's life until the day he delivers us at the second coming. But we don't have to worry about all those sins because I've accepted you as my Savior and every sin has been paid for, past, present, and future. So just keep on sinning. Enjoy your sin. Christ paid the penalty. You're going to heaven anyway. I had that same discussion with someone who claimed to be an evangelist. You see the lie. You're trapped in bondage with that theology. This type of theology keeps people in slavery. And then the third place that Satan has power, the Bible uh, talks about it as the law of sin and death. You've heard this law of sin and praise be to the spirit uh, who set, who, who, the law of life set me free from the law of sin and death in Romans. What is the law of sin and death? The law of sin and death is simply the reality of what happens when you are outside God's design or God's law. Give you an example. If someone holds your head underwater, or somebody ties concrete to your feet and throws you in the water, you are now outside the law of respiration. And the broken law exerts a power over you that you cannot overcome. And it's non compromising, it's non negotiable. You either are in harmony with that law or you're not in harmony with that law. And when you're not in harmony with that law, the only thing that happens is suffering and death. When we are outside of God's law, it's like having your head held underwater. You're deviant from the way God built life to operate. And it has a power over you that you cannot overcome. Christ came to overcome that power, to put us back in harmony with the way God built life to operate. And when we come back to see the truth that destroys the lies, and we see that he's loving and gracious and he's not condemning, he's our heavenly physician who wants to heal us, and we go to him and open the heart, then the Holy Spirit takes what Christ has achieved for us and reproduces it in us. So it's no longer I, the sinful me that lives, that loves the sinful world. No, it's Christ that lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature, and we get new motives, new desires. Things change within in a supernatural natural ways we participate with christ in trust and love this is conversion this is what god is trying to do in our in our lives and we come back into harmony with the way he built the universe thus we read in things like revelation chapter 12 verse 11 those ready to go to heaven these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death means what what does it mean think it through think through the meaning of that statement if they don't, they don't love their life so much as to shrink from death. What's that mean? What, what's motivating their heart? Are they watching out for self? Are they selfish? Are they fear-ridden? Are they trying to protect themselves? Are they survival of the fittest driven? No. no, something has changed in them. They're selfless. They give their lives, if necessary, to help others. So Satan's power is the power to get us to deviate from God's design for life, also known as God's law, by deception and temptation. This is out of a book called Councils on Stewardship, page 21. We have no enemy without, that means outside ourselves, no enemy outside ourselves that we need to fear. Did you know there's no enemy outside you you need to fear? Our great conflict is with unconsecrated self. When we conquer self, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. What do you all think? Is that true or false? Where's the greatest enemy? Where's the greatest battle we have to fight? Do you know how many patients I have in my office that will not accept this and they spend their entire lives externalizing responsibility from their pains, their heartaches, their troubles, blaming others, Adam and Eve. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. I didn't do anything, it was her. They spend their whole lives finding someone, someone to blame. And, and some of my patients will actually open their heart to truth and begin taking ownership and realize, hey, wait a minute, regardless of what anybody else says, regardless of what anybody else thinks, regardless of what anybody else does, I'm responsible for my own heart, mind, and character. Mm-hmm. And those who take that path and start going down that path be, find healing. Those who refuse and continue to blame others for their problems in their heart don't find healing. There's no healing to be found there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. The second paragraph states that those who accept Jesus will know by experience the power of God in their lives. And so know by experience. What do you think this means? 
What is the power of God? What does it look like in your life? What is the experience? How does it impact your experience to know the, his power in your life? Anybody want to comment on that? Yes. I have a question. If, if we have a, this natural tendency for sin and we enjoy that, but yet we want to become under the law of God, as you described a minute ago, how would you describe the amount of effort it would take for us to get from there to there? What is our role in that? What, what, how much work do we have to do? I hate to use that word. Mm-hmm. Rather say, what, how would you describe the kind of effort that it would take for us to get from one place to another? First off, it takes a willingness. Yeah. Many, patient, many people are not happy with the consequences and the results of sin in their life. I'm not happy with the fact I'm in financial problems. I'm not happy with the fact that I've got a sexually transmitted disease. I'm not happy with the fact my wife is leaving me. I'm not happy with the fact of my gambling debts. I'm not fa- happy with the fact that... I mean, they're, they're not happy with the consequences of their drugs or their alcohol or their pornography or their cheating on their spouse or their stealing from their boss and they're going to jail for it. They're not happy with it. But that's, that's not the same thing as not being happy with the selfishness in the heart that led to it in the first place. This was the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter denied the Lord. Judas betrayed the Lord. Judas threw the money down. I have betrayed innocent blood. On the surface, it appears like a repentance, doesn't it? But, but it wasn't. See, Peter was disgusted with the selfishness in his heart that led him to deny the Lord. Judas was disappointed. His plans didn't work out. He wanted Jesus to take the throne by force when he was cornered. He wasn't disgusted with his own angling, his own selfishness, his own conniving. And so the first question that has to be brought to, are are people actually at the point they want to be free from their sin? Many of them don't want to be free from sin. They want to be free from the results of their sin. I have patients that I've treated who were in the ICU with alcohol-related liver failure and serious, serious problems of physical health related to it. And I was consulted to see them. And in interviewing them, when they're lucid, uh, I remember uh, there's more than one patient would say things like, you know, we want to put you over in the rehab to get you in a detox program where you can say, I'm not going to rehab. Well, where are you going to go? I'm going to go home. What are you going to do when you get home? I'm going to drink. Mm-hmm. Well, do you know if you drink, you could die? Yeah. Well, why are you going to drink? Because I like to drink. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can do something to help me not die when I drink, then you can do that. But I'm not going to stop drinking. See, they don't like the pain and suffering the drinking causes, but they like the feeling that's drinking. So they're going to drink. Many people in sin don't like the suffering of the sin, but they like the sin. So the first question is, are you, re- are you really wanting to be free of this hold in your life or not? And many people aren't. They play games with themselves. They, want, they fear the punishment of it. They fear the judgment day. They fear these, and they want to be free from all that, but they don't want the sin out of their life. So you have to come and look yourself in the mirror and say, do you really want to be free or not? And that's the first step. First step of the 12 steps, we admit that we're powerless over sin, addiction, whatever, in our lives, and our lives are unmanageable. We're powerless. And the second step is power higher than ourselves and restores to sanity. So the first step is you have to admit that you've got a problem, and it's a problem that is destructive and killing you. And you've got to have, a, have an attitude where, I don't want this in my life anymore. I want to be free. And in that, then, where do you go next? Where do you go next? That's where the big obstructions come from much of Christianity because much of Christianity will say, okay, here's that, that person who's been doing illegal drugs their whole life. They want to be free, but the only place we go in our society, well, we live in a society like Nazi Germany, and what did they do to all drug addicts in Nazi Germany? They put them in rehab. They killed them all. They executed them. So you've come to a conviction, you've got a drug problem, and you live in Nazi Germany. Hmm. But does this not go back to the case of the pedophile once they were... Their term was over. They go right back into the same pattern again. It's because they never allowed Christ to free them of, quote, this habit. That's exactly right. This is what I'm getting to. If you have a God construct who's like the Nazis, who's going to punish you, he's the judge who has to punish, then you never, you, you may go to, to your lawyer, Jesus, to get him to put his payment down by your account in heaven so that you don't have to be punished and the government can't, but you don't get a change of heart. Okay, so we have to present the gospel that, hey, wait, this is a healing and, re- and, and a recreative process. And God is not a judge. He's the great physician who loves you. And when you've uh, got this addiction problem and you're dying from it, you're not afraid to go to the doctor because they're not they're going to heal you. And so it, next thing that comes after you, you have this conviction, there's something wrong. You've got to believe you got to have a, a. A salvation opportunity presented to you. 
Not a condemnation punishment, not a avoidance of a legal consequence presented. You actually have to have a restorative, healing, freeing gospel presented to you. If that's not presented, you're, you may realize something's wrong, but you lose hope. You become hopeless. And you, you may go into the work system, the work, 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 and fail and work and fail and work and fail and work and so forth and so on. But you have to, we have to present the gospel the way it really is in Jesus Christ. And in that, people can come to a conviction. And when they come to a love-trust relation with Christ, they open the heart and the Holy Spirit comes in. And then there is a cooperative joining. And you know, the, the marriage relationship, Husband, wife, isolated and separate from God as God designed it? Or was God to be, were there, were there beings to be dwelling places for the Holy Spirit before sin? So when the husband and wife came into unity and the two became one, it actually wasn't two, it was three. It was a trinity. Was it not? Okay. And we have to come back into the unity at one minute. Father, I pray that they will be one as you and I are one. You and me, me and them, all of us united. Okay. We have to come into unity. We have, but that requires trust, doesn't it? So we have to present the gospel of trust. We come then into a unity, a partnership where our heart is joined with his heart. And then we get a supernatural transforming experience where our motives change, our desires change. We become disgusted with the things we, the things we once actually found attractive actually becomes repulsive to us in our hearts. When that happens, then we're not just a, uh, you know, hiding and cowering in fear of punishment. And when the punishment and the scrutiny is removed, we just, no heart change, we, we go back. No, even when the scrutiny is removed, that's disgusting. I don't want to do that anymore. There's a change that happens. And I believe that that transforming change can actually happen and does happen in lives. But it only happens when we present God. And then our partnership, we have to choose to spend time with him. We, 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 We have to choose not just to avoid the negative. We have to choose to fill our hearts with the positive. That is a work, if you want to call it a work. To no longer buy alcohol, to no longer visit the porn websites, to no longer, you know, we have, that's, and to instead... Spend time with Christ, to reach out in ministry to other people, to surrender daily in, in communion and meditation with him. That's, you can call that a work if you want. It's not a work that earns your salvation. It would be a work similar to the patient with pneumonia taking their antibiotics every day. Well, I've got to take them. I've got to do it. It's my, my job. But the antibiotics do something that you can't do for yourself, but it is your job to take them. Okay? We have to partake of Christ, and we have to open the heart to the Spirit, and something happens that we're not doing for ourselves, but we do have to partake. Does that kind of answer your question? Yes, yes. So it's a commitment. It's a, it's a commitment. It's a journey. It's a daily experience. Um, and when you go, once you once you make it over that hurdle to you experience Christ, it, it actually becomes a joy, doesn't it? Yeah. In fact, don't you miss it when you're not with Him? Yes. Question with the the penal legal system and and knowing that God is judge. How does the, the... What do you mean knowing God is judge? I mean, that's an assumption. What do you mean by that? God is love. God is, is the judge. God is... What does that mean? That's what I'm asking you. Outside of the penal legal system. Okay. How, what would a judge be to someone that loves God? When a pa- God, okay. God is judge. When a patient comes into an emergency room or to my office or any doctor's office, does a doctor do a thorough examination? Do they take a thorough history of their life as accurately as they can ascertain that's pertinent to the situation? Yes? And then they synthesize all this information and then they examine the person then all the various tests and things and MRIs and scans and they take all this information and they synthesize it and do they make a judgment? called a diagnosis. Do they? Sure they do. And what's the purpose of making that judgment, that diagnosis? Ha 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 You've got Lyme's disease. <laughs> 30 lashes for you, baby. Is it, we make this di- diagnosis to punish? Do we make this judgment to punish? No, we make this judgment so we can then bring the remedy to bear. Okay? Yes, God is the judge. He judges everything for the condition it's actually in. And we look at the great white throne judgment. People think this is going to be a great courtroom scene. No. What happens there? It's very simple. God diagnoses accurately the actual condition of every heart. Those who have opened the heart and let Christ in have been renewed and regenerated within. And, and, and they will see Christ face to face because the scripture says, for we shall be like him. We will be like him. And God judges. Hey, they're like my son in heart. 
They love others more than themselves. They don't live to, to serve themselves anymore. And God judges accurately. The diagnosis accurately. Hey, they refused healing. No matter what I've done, their hearts have been hardened and they've been seared. In fact, let me just tell you something very interesting, a little brain science on this issue about searing the heart. May I say something? Yeah, go ahead. So in the penal system, God as judge in that, that framework, okay, then the focus is on judgment in that system of God. Whereas if it's the healing, recreation focus of God as judge or God as great physician, then, then the focus is on healing. In the penal system, the focus is on the wrongs that we've done, the broken law that's been broken, God's need to, uh, to um, uh, find the, uh, place fault where it belongs with the proper parties, and then inflict from his throne what is considered just punishments. And this, this is basically taking human laws and human governments and creating a God construct that looks just like a fallen human world. That's what that is. And that's all a fabrication and a lie. It's a projection of a, of a distorted human mind. The God's kingdom is not of this world. It is the kingdom of love, and life is built to operate in harmony with his nature. Deviations are not compatible with life, and God has been working through all of his agencies to bring healing and restoration to his creation. And those who allow that will be saved, and those who don't will be lost. In Romans 8, which is going into the next part of the lesson, it talks about this. And we don't, we're not going to read all the text that I had in here, but in Romans 8, you'll find that the Holy Spirit strives for us and groans and utterances. You will also find in verse 31 that, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his son, gave him up? How will he not with him also give us all things? And so what you find in Romans 8 is that God Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all for us, working collectively in harmony for our good. There is no place in Scripture for one member of the Godhead to be pleading to another member of the Godhead to pay the legal price of his blood to our account so God won't have to punish. That's all a fabrication of a distorted mind. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. Yeah, you're going to tell us something about the brain. Yeah, I don't know if I have time. I've got several other things. Um, <laughs> Do you want to hear it? Yeah. Okay, let me tell you a couple different parts of the brain. Part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. This is the part of the brain where you experience pleasure, all pleasure. If you fall in love and you're just all just excited and giddy and you can't even just sit down because you're walking there, nucleus accumbens is surging with dopamine. If you taste your favorite food, just oh, just enjoy that. Nucleus accumbens, all pleasure, nucleus accumbens. Okay, it's a pleasure center. And then the orbital cortex, right above the orbit of your eye, is where you uh, get a conviction of wrongdoing, and it works to redirect inappropriate behavior. So if one of you tried to stand up in here right now and take your clothes off in front of the rest of us, this orbital cortex would start firing like crazy. You'd get really stressed and uncomfortable, and you, it would be working to tell you, don't do it, don't do it, stop. Okay, that's the orbital cortex. It, it's involved in moral decision-making and, and redirection of inappropriate behavior. Now, we have people uh, take addictive substances, say... Um, Cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin. There are, there are changes. I won't go into the details of the specific chemical changes, but there are changes in the um, nucleus accumbens, regardless of whether the person takes it voluntarily or they're dosed against their will. You put an IV in and you just dose them. You just dose them with it. The same changes happen in the reward circuitry of the brain either way. But very interestingly, in the orbital cortex of the brain, if somebody is dosed, these, there's certain molecular changes and gene expression changes that happen when a person voluntarily doses themselves that does not happen when they're dosed against their will or not choosing to do it themselves. And those changes are such that what happens is the orbital cortex becomes less and less responsive and eventually starts shrinking. The conscience is becoming seared. It actually happens on a molecular, genetic, structural level in your brain. So the, the cool thing is, so, so think this through, if somebody forcibly shoots drugs into you, they can physically addict you, but they can't sear your conscience. Amen. And that's true on a brain level. You have to actually choose to participate for them to do that to you. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So, okay, we were going to get into the whole thing about, I want to spend a little time on this, is about overcoming demonic forces and victory over demonic forces. Second paragraph, Wednesday's lesson. Um, 
Yeah, it says, uh, um, he sent out the 12 and he deemed it important to give them power of demons and unclean spirits. And this is, you can find in Matthew, I think it's cha- uh, chapter 10, where he sent them out and gave them power over demons and unclean spirits. Question, is there a difference between demons and unclean spirits? Hmm. Then why'd they say it? Why'd they just say demons? Well, I th- I, I'm going to suggest some things to you. The Greek word for demons is actually a word that refers to devils and or fallen angels, demonic beings of another nature other than humans. The word for spirits, however, is the word pneuma. Pneuma. Pneumonia. Pneuma. Pneumatic tire. Pneuma. It, and it's translated in the New Testament lots of different ways. It's the same word used for Holy Spirit. It's Holy Pneuma. Okay. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the word for the spirit of men. It's also used for the wind. The wind blows where, when Nicodemus came to talk to Christ, he says the wind blows where it wants. Uh, but the spirit, you know, t- talks about when the English, it kind of makes a difference for you. Spirit and wind, it makes the difference for you in, in, Je- in John 3. But in Greek, it's the Pneuma blows where it wants and the Pneuma changes and it's the same word. It's Pneuma. It means the wind. It means Holy Spirit. Um, it also means breath. Ah, the breath that people have, the actual physical breath. Um, when Jesus died and gave up his last breath, some translations said he gave up the ghost. Okay? The last breath. It was pneuma. The word is pneuma. And then on the lake, when they saw um, Jesus walking to them, and it says they thought it was a, a ghost. Remember this? And, 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 and it's not talking the Holy Ghost at this point. They're thinking it now it's some type of an apparition that we call a ghost. That word is pneuma. Okay, same word. So this word means lots, it can be lots of different things. So is it possible that what this refers to, to drive out demons and evil spirits, actually means to drive away the demonic fallen angelic entities, but the evil spirit refers to the evil motive, attitude, longing, and desire in the heart of the person who has aligned itself with the spirit? Remember Paul said, I'm with you in spirit? Didn't he say that? I'll be with you in spirit. What's he talking about? Oh, I've got an angelic angel that's going to be with you? Is that what he's talking about? He's talking about my attitude, my heart is with you. And so I'm suggesting to you that they give them power for the people who long to be free of the sin, to drive out the evil demonic forces who are harassing, but also drive out the evil desire of the heart. And have you ever known people who have had some struggle with, with an addiction or sin in their life? And this doesn't happen to everyone, but sometimes this happens where people at a moment of conversion, actually, they never have a desire again. It's gone. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you seen this? Mm-hmm. I'm suggesting that the evil spirit was driven out. Mm-hmm. That's what that's referring to. Mm-hmm. And, you, okay, and, and you can argue against this because this isn't dogmatic and nailed down. Just as I was studying through this, this... There's a possibility. What do you all think of the possibility? Mm-hmm. And then we're going to talk about how does Satan gain possession of a human being. But we're out of time. That's in the notes. So maybe you get the notes. You can look through the, the discussion on um, demonic influences and what it looks like to be under spirit, Holy Spirit control and what it looks like to be under demonic influence and control and uh, the things that we can do to protect our minds and fortify our minds against that and what we can do to, so the devil flees from us. And what does it mean that the devil flees from us? In fact, let's, let's, let's close with that idea. I'm going to go over just a minute. I'm going to talk about this idea the devil flees from us. What does it mean that the devil flees? is it that when you come to Christ, accept him as your Savior, you've had this true conversion process that he leaves you alone. You no more harassments, no more hassles, no more stresses, no more trials, no more attempts to tempt you. You just have a nice time through life after you've given your heart to the Lord. Is that what that means? No. He flees you? No, my suggestion is this. See, when you, when you come to Christ and accept him, it says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. So if you're resisting him, you're turning to Christ, right? Okay, so you turn to Christ, you open the heart, Christ changes this whole thing we just walked through. You have a change in motive, a change in desire. The evil desire of your heart is being cast out and a new desire is put in. Thus, the particular temptation that, that the devil was plying you with loses its attraction to you. It loses its grip. You're, you don't desire it anymore. Thus, he flees from that temptation. He comes at you with another one. This is what I'm thinking is happening. You see, as, as you get victory over one area of your life, the leave doesn't just leave you alone, does he? But you notice if you've ever had a victory of a certain sin or temptation, it loses its attraction, it loses its appeal, that you don't get hit with that one over and over again. 
something else comes your way. He flees from that one because he knows he's not going to get you there. You've got victory. And the more victory we gain, the more we fortify our heart with truth. And, and there's some things we can do specifically in our life, I've listed in the lesson, that can protect and prepare your brain because the avenue for the devil to gain mastery over you is your nervous system. It's your, it's your central nervous system is the avenue for the devil to influence you. And there's things you can do to make your nervous system more vulnerable and things you can do to fortify it. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be, how you run your universe, how patient you are, how you long for us to come to the knowledge of you and be your, your voluntary free friends. Lord, we ask that you will send your spirit because we, we have seen the truth to know that you are completely trustworthy and you want to heal us, not punish us, since we open our hearts and ask that your spirit will come in. Take what Christ has achieved at such incredible cost to you and him and reproduce it in our hearts that we will be like you in mind and motive and character and thought and deed. And we'll see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.